In Matthew chapter 26, beginning at verse 6, we read as follows. While Jesus was in Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him, having an alabaster flask of ointment which was very precious, and poured it on his head as he was reclining. But seeing this, his disciples became indignant, saying, Why has this been wasted? For this ointment could have been sold for much to be given to the poor. But having known this, Jesus said to them, Why trouble this woman? She has performed a good work for me. You will always have the poor among you, but me you will not always have. She has poured this ointment on my body for my burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever the good news shall be proclaimed in all the world, this deed shall also be spoken in, her, in memorial of her. Let's pray. Gracious Father, whose blessed Son, Jesus Christ, came down from heaven to be the true bread which gives life to the world. Evermore give us this bread that He may live in us and we in Him who lives and reigns with You and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. What a waste. That was the response of the disciples. I believe it's John who tells us that Judas Iscariot was the one who really spoke up, but clearly in Mark's account, Matthew's account, we recognize that it's all of the disciples who are thinking this thought. What a waste. Think of it. The Gospel writers tell us 300 denarii of spikenard. A costly, costly oil imported from India. It's a year's wages of perfume for labor or someone in the military. Just a rough estimate. We're talking about, in today's standards, $30,000 worth of cologne. That's absurd. Who has that kind of cologne? $30,000. Maybe a little more, maybe a little less. But whatever a laborer would have earned in his annual income, a man serving in the military of Rome, a year's wages gone that quickly not really gone I can't imagine the the smell in the room the overwhelming sense of fragrance and the disciples the text tells us are indignant what a waste what an obscene waste to be indignant is not just calculated, reasoned disagreement, they're angry. This is ludicrous. To pour out that kind of money, to just pour it out on the floor for the dirt to absorb it. What a waste. 
you have to agree, you would have probably said the same thing. I know I would have. Gone. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of really expensive imported oil. Gone. Let those figures kind of sink in a bit. 300 denarii. We, we're kind of, uh, that comes across as muted to us because, you know, I've never held a denarii. 300 silver coins. A year's income. Poured out. Poured out on Jesus, but poured out nonetheless. The disciples are indignant, screaming, what a waste. Why in the world has she done this? Because think of the good that could have been done. $30,000, you could provide an awful lot of winter bags for Atlanta's homeless. Now, we helped out this past winter, but we didn't provide $30,000 worth of coats and deodorant and toothpaste and toothbrushes and lip balm. $30,000. Think of the good that could have been done. Think of all the poor that could have been helped. There was cause for the disciples being indignant. They were just being reasonable people. John tells us that Judas was being a little bit more reasonable than others. He says that Judas would typically poke his hand into the the purse because he was the purse keeper of the disciples. And he would take a little bit out for himself. But nevertheless, what a waste. Gone. Poured out on Jesus. Think of just the situation. Jesus is reclining at table. They had very nice ways of eating. Their, their homes were kind of humble, but this means Jesus had, was on a couch that's kind of pulled up at the table and he's got his feet propped up. He's just finished dinner. He didn't even have to go off to the living room. There probably isn't a living room. Just laid back enjoying time and fellowship with his disciples, sitting in Simon's house. Uh, It's possible that Simon was Martha's either husband or father. We're not sure. The other gospel writers tell us that uh, it was a a party, a, a, a feast thrown in honor of Jesus because he had raised Lazarus from the dead. And so Mary and Martha, in celebration of what the Lord had done for their brother, had thrown him this feast. 
And here this lady comes, walking in the room with a big old flask of very expensive perfume. Pours it on Jesus' head. John also tells us that she began wiping his feet with it. With her hair. Anointing him. A pretty interesting scene. A bit awkward. And the disciples are indignant. What a waste. You know, the, one of the amazing things about the gospel accounts is how often Jesus is associated with a party. A feast, a celebration. His first miracle, changing water into wine, is our wedding feast. And you've heard me say before that the Hebrew people, they knew how to throw parties. Wedding feast would have been about seven days in length. Jesus is often found at a party. In fact, he's often found as the center of the party, the life of the party. The church has always been characterized as a celebrating people. We celebrate. We gather every Sunday and we celebrate. This is not just something we do. Church is not just some activity. It is an act of celebration. It is an act of declaration of what Christ has done and who He is. But we celebrate because Jesus is here. The disciples, when they began meeting on what they called the Lord's Day, Sunday, the day of the resurrection, they met because they were convinced beyond a shadow of any doubt that Christ was in their midst. He was not dead. He rose again. And they watched Him ascend to the Father's right hand. And they knew that He sat upon His throne and that He was establishing His kingdom in their midst. And so why celebrate? Because Jesus is here. Why throw a feast? Because Jesus has come back to Bethany. And He is the Lord. He is the one who raised Lazarus. We celebrate because of who He is and the fact that He's here. And we celebrate because of what He's done. He has been good. He has been merciful. He has been faithful. He is our Redeemer. So we celebrate. We rejoice. We make ourselves happy and merry because He lives and because He redeems. It's... um, Lent is one of those seasons. We associate it with being somber. And there's reason for that. We associate it with the cross. Because we're making our way to the cross. We call Good Friday the day of our Lord's death good. Which is a bit awkward. And throughout Lent, as we mortify ourselves, as we deny ourselves, as we 
keep our bodily appetites in check. As we discipline ourselves, as we try to beef up our scripture reading and our prayer time, all those things that we associate with Lent, we stop every Sunday and we celebrate because He who died on the cross on our behalf is He who rose again out of the tomb. So it's a, a season that's filled with perplexities and paradoxes and conundrums. It's a season in which we're very serious. But it's also a season in which we should very seriously celebrate. Because He's here. He is here still bearing His wounds. He is here interceding in our behalf. He is here establishing His kingdom. And that's reason to rejoice. He's doing something amazing among us. He's doing something amazing through us. He has not left Himself without witness. He has provided His witness to to the world in the church. And the church is a celebrating body, a celebrating people, a people who recognize who Christ is, the fact that He's here, what He's done, and what He is establishing. And in these gospel records, which are really tales about the birth, life, and death of our Lord, some have been spoken of as stories of His death with a slight prologue. These stories of the death of Jesus are filled with accounts of Him celebrating and partying, being celebrated, being partied over. Think of the good that we could be doing even now. Why are you here? You could be doing something else. You could be doing a number of really admirable things. I'm not talking about sleeping in on Sundays. I'm not talking about watching football. Football season's over with. There's an awful lot of good out in the community, out in the world that you could be doing. You could be doing innumerable things that would be worthwhile. And yet every Sunday you guys show up to hear me yammer on for half an hour. I know really what's, what's happening. You guys show up because the music's so good. It's incredible. Which is very appropriate to this sermon's theme. We sing as the disciples sang. Not just like they sang. You wouldn't have understood what they were singing and you would have thought that's really weird sounding. But it's interesting that God's people have always been singing people. One of the greatest ways to celebrate is to sing. Sing. 
make melody. And we have every reason to sing each and every Sunday because we gather as Jesus' people celebrating His presence, recognizing what He has done, and determining ourselves that we will be part of His kingdom. We will reach this world with His good news. Not just a story, but a story inhabited in a life lived for Him, in a life of mercy, in a life of good works. Jesus puts the burden of questioning and indignance back on his disciples. Why in the world are you giving her a hard time? What's wrong with you? What's wrong with your attitude? Think about it in those types of uh, normal dialect and, and, and you recognize it. Jesus is not you know, sitting back pondering sacred thoughts. He's responding to them. Why harass her about what she's doing? You kind of... Uh, Hear echoes of, of Jesus' question to Peter when at the end of John's gospel, Jesus is restoring him and asking him those questions. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And he talks about Peter and his end. His death. The end of his life. And Peter responds to Jesus. What about him? Talking about John. You're talking about my end. What about this guy? And Jesus very, very aptly responds to him. What business is that of yours? Mind your own. So these disciples are indignant, murmuring, what wastefulness. Good grief, we could have done so much good. And Jesus' response is, what business is that of yours? Why are you going on about her? She's done something good here for me. Why are you even worried with what she's done? Very interesting. We all ought to check our objections to others. Our objections to wastefulness in general, I'm not praising wastefulness. I'm simply saying that we all have the ability to be wasteful in the eyes of others. We think of an $80 pair of 
men's dress shoes as being pretty reasonable. After all, I didn't get the $800 pair. I didn't get the $120 pair. I just went for the $8 pair. Well, you could have gotten the $20 pair. It's interesting how easily we can look at the, quote, wastefulness of others and recognize it, but we don't want anybody looking at our wastefulness. The way we choose to do things. But especially, we should check our objections to wastefulness for Jesus. It is... um, Just a point of um, confession here from your pastor. It is so easy and it is so um, it is so self uh, aggrandizing to see other churches and think. Man, that building. Why do they need all that? You know what I mean. I, um, there are some really, really nice church buildings in our community. There are some really nice church buildings all throughout Atlanta. And it's really easy to point fingers at others and say, look at that waste. $40 million on a building? For what? Just doing what we do. Singing and listening to somebody drum on about Jesus. But there are also a lot of really expensive houses in our community. And normally we don't want to say anything about that. Matthew, earlier on, in chapter 7, records these words of Jesus. Judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove that speck from your eye, and look, A plank is there in your own eye. Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Life is filled with decisions. Every single day, we have to make 
innumerable decisions. How we're going to spend our money, how we're going to spend our time, how we're going to spend our energy, how we're going to spend our thoughts, how we're going to read this book or that book, more of this one than that one. And it is that road down judging wastefulness and that road down the street of questioning the decisions of others is a long road with really no end. And it does none of us really any good. What we can make sure we do as the people of God, as people trying to live as faithful as faithfully as we can for Him, is to make sure that we don't miss opportunities to celebrate His presence. Opportunities to celebrate what he's done. Life is to be enjoyed. Life is precious. Life with Jesus is joyous. We are his people. We gather here to celebrate. We gather amongst ourselves to celebrate. And there's reason to celebrate every day His presence and His goodness. And the world will look to us and say, you're wasting your time. You're wasting your energy. Why in the world do you spend half an hour reading your Bible? Don't you know all that stuff's just myth anyway? We are His people. And we celebrate His presence. And that's not a wasteful thing. That is not a pointless endeavor. He is our Lord. He is our king. And he's establishing his kingdom in our midst. And so we rejoice. Let's pray.